0: Next, our scripture reading is from Acts 5, 17 through 32, and 40 through 41, and it's on page 913 in your Pew Bibles if you want to look it up. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council And someone came to them and said, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left in the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Holly. Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Brookside. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here, and uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, um, I'd love to do that. I'm really glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if you're in the process of, of looking for a church home. We would love uh, for Christ's community to be that for you. And we're really glad that you're here this morning. And I'd love to begin our time now uh, in this uh, part of our service where we look at the scriptures together just by praying and ask that God would continue to be at work as he has been already in this service, um, helping us to see Jesus more clearly. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have been at work, that you are at work, that you're speaking. And I pray now as we turn to the scriptures uh, and focus our attention there that you would help us Um, in fresh and new and deeper ways wherever we are at on our our journey of faith um, to see Jesus more clearly than we have. We pray this in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit who reigns with you forever and ever. Amen. But what if we as Christians were a joyful people? What if the one thing that, that Christians were known for more than anything else was their incredible joy? What if our response to, to opposition to our faith or to our allegiance to Jesus or, or even to our religious freedoms being curtailed wasn't anger or outrage or even despair? But what if it was joy? What if it was joy and there's a lot of conversation if you're following a certain segment or portion of the news these days about what it means to be an evangelical. And is that a political category? Is that a theological category? Um, who gets to define that? And I think often it's clear when in those media reports that about evangelicals that there isn't a lot of clarity about what that language means um, but but leaving that whole conversation to one side for a moment, let's just ask the question: How how are Christians, and perhaps Christians, particularly identified with this more sort of evangelical stream of Christianity? How are they perceived and, and presented in the broader American culture? Now, is there a reputation, a, a fragrance, of an aura of, of joy? Are we known for our joy? Now, again, the, the language and categories of what it means to be an evangelical are highly contentious right now. But, but consider for a moment, because, again, whether we, we like it or not, churches like ours are, are often identified with that evangelical movement. And for better and for worse, I believe that's on both sides of that. Um, but what, just how are we, how are churches like ours perceived in the broader culture, rightly or wrongly? Well, this is what happens if you type the words evangelicals are into Google and then just see what what does Google think you're going to search for next? This is what comes up. So here's what you get. Evangelicals are are nuts, uh, heretics, morally bankrupt, immoral, not Christian, frauds, Pharisees, Losing the battle for the Bible. So if you if you just go off of what Google thinks you're going to type next after evangelicals are, that's that's what you that's what you get. Um, it's always an interesting thing to see what Google auto completes because it's a, it's an indication of what people are are searching for. Now, again, to be clear, uh, many who would self-identify with the label of evangelical today don't actually align with the historic Christian commitments of of historic orthodoxy. And on the other hand, there's a lot of folks who wouldn't own the label of evangelical, but who are deeply committed to historic Christian orthodoxy. Um, But the, the question here is not so much about that, but how are Christians perceived in the broader culture today? And it's not necessarily with a deep connection to joy, But what if Christians, real, actual, historic, faith-affirming Christians, were joyful? What if the first thing that anyone in our culture thought when they heard the word Christian was, what an incredibly joy-filled people? That perhaps they would think, yeah, you know, Christians, I'm not sure about... How they understand the Bible or the place that that plays in their lives. You know, I'm not certainly not too keen on how they think about human sexuality or end of life ethics, but you know what? Those people are truly some of the most deeply joy filled people I've ever known. What if we were known for our joy? What if we were a joyful people? Well, what we discover in Acts chapter 5 is that there's a surprising and paradoxical connection between the unavoidable suffering that comes with following Jesus and a life of deep joy. We've been studying the book of Acts together, which recounts what Jesus continues to do and teach through his people, the local church. Um, when if you look in the the kind of the first volume to uh, a two volume set that is the Gospel of Luke and Acts, they go together. Luke writes at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, this is an account of what Jesus began to do and teach. So, a quick summary of what is it the book of Acts about? It's what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through his people, through the church, how he's continuing to be. At work, And at this point, in the story of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, the church is still so new that they aren't even known yet as Christians. That doesn't happen until about six chapters later. That language hasn't even been invented yet to talk about who this group of people are. Instead, they're referred to as the followers of the way or followers of this life this life. Actually, you see that language in in verse 20. Holly read it for us, that they were commanded to speak the words of this life. And what we're going to see this morning is that this life, this life of following Jesus, is marked by unavoidable suffering, but also amazing joy. So, So let's take a closer look at this story and how it unfolds here. In Acts chapter 5. Last week at the the very beginning of Acts chapter 5, we saw an internal threat to this new church community, the threat of lies and deception within that community. Here in this ending part, the second half of Acts chapter 5, we see an external threat to the church. And Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that many signs and wonders, these kind of miracle things, are, are being done by the leaders of the local church and that they are regularly gathering in and around the temple in the center of Jerusalem. And why is it significant that this is pointed out? Because the, the temple complex is the geographical and spiritual center of the Jewish faith. And this, this new movement of Christians, even though they're not called that yet, the, these followers of the way, those who hold to this life, They see themselves as the fulfillment, the completion of the Jewish faith. Jesus himself was a Jew, and his life and death and resurrection and ascension, all that he claimed to be the fulfillment of all the promises and expectations of the Old Testament and the Jewish faith. That's why we as Christians study the Old Testament, because Jesus loved the Old Testament and said, this whole thing is about me. Someone said studying the Old Testament is a, a labor of love for Jesus because he says the whole thing is about me. And These early leaders of the church, they gather here right in the center of the Jewish religious life and they're proclaiming and celebrating Jesus as the true fulfillment of all these expectations. They're incredibly public in their faith. Incredibly public in their faith. There's, there's no more hiding in an upper room anymore. They're standing in the center of sort of the public square of their religious and social life. And being very public with their faith. They're front and center each and every day with the very people who argued for Jesus' crucifixion. And we've seen time and time again, and already in the book of Acts, that, that these apostles, these early church leaders, they are not shy about reminding the Jewish leaders of the fact that they were the ones who condemned Jesus to death. And yet they call them to faith in Christ and say, come. You are the ones who did this, but it's not too late. Come and follow him. And as Luke describes this scene, he points out that this movement has grown. So at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, there's about 120 people. By now, there's probably about 15,000 men and women and children who are now a part of this Jesus movement. And it's attracting a lot of attention, but some people are afraid to join the movement. I think they can kind of sense that this is headed for a collision course with at least the Jewish leaders and maybe with Rome at some point. They respect the movement, but they're afraid to join. And yet there's also lots of people who are continuing to to come and be a part each and every day. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 5. Luke writes, none of the rest dared join them. So there's a group of people who are saying, I'm not sure I want to be a part of this thing yet. But the people held them in high esteem And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. You know, one of the hallmarks of Luke's writing, both in in Luke and in Acts, is the highlighting the role and significance of women in the Jesus movement. So notice here he points out multitudes of men and women. This isn't just a patriarchal movement of men. This is men and women inclusive in this community. But this movement is also now being perceived as a significant threat to the religious status quo of the day in Jerusalem. And the the leaders of this religious establishment in Judaism, they are filled with jealousy, Luke tells us. And already once back in chapter 4 of Acts, they had imprisoned some of the apostles and commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus any longer. But here in chapter 5, the apostles and others, they continue undeterred. Um, and people continue to be drawn to this life. And so here in verse 7, we see uh, another crackdown beginning on these apostolic leaders by the high priest in the religious community in Jerusalem. Acts 5.17, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, that was one of the groupings of religious leaders, and filled him with and they, and filled his jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, the last time this happened, back in Acts chapter 4, it was just Peter and John who were arrested. But this time they take all 12 of these key early church leaders and they lock them up. I wonder what the rest of the community, this. Christian community was thinking at this moment. Man, all of our leaders have been locked up. I just, we, the text doesn't tell us, but I've, just, I've wondered what they was going through their minds at this moment as they're, all of their key leaders are put in prison. And this is where we need to pause for a moment and observe that, that this life, this life of allegiance to Jesus, it won't let us avoid suffering. This life won't let us avoid suffering. If you commit yourself to Jesus, to the good news of the gospel, to this life, you won't be able to avoid suffering for it. And let me explain for just a minute, because there are different sorts of suffering. So if you imagine our world as a beautiful, stately old mansion, you know, think of one of those classic mansion homes on Ward Parkway heading out of the plaza. And this old mansion that is our world, it has fallen into disrepair. It's, it's our home, but it has a lot of problems. You know, and it still retains a, a semblance of its original beauty, but, but nothing works like it should. You know, the paint is peeling, the electricity works intermittently, the, the plumbing is breaking all the time, the roof is, is constantly leaking. So to live in that house is to experience suffering no matter who you are. to live in that house there's just the world doesn't work right so we experience suffering that's one category but imagine then that the the owner of that house comes and says i'm going to begin to do some restoration work some remodeling some repairing restoring this to what it always should have been and, and more and some of the residents of the home align with the owner and say we want to be a part of that but others they oppose that movement And they actually work actively against those who have aligned themselves with the owner. Those who have aligned themselves with the owner experience now a a different, another kind of suffering on top of just the general suffering of of living in a a broken down house. That's what we're talking about here when I say that this life won't let us avoid suffering, that if we are faithful to Jesus, there's a unique kind of suffering that will come because of that. You see what I mean by the kind of different sorts of suffering? If you and I are committed to this life, this life won't let us avoid suffering. Suffering for the name of Jesus. And so, two questions here to, to ask about this. First, if this life won't let us avoid suffering, we need to ask are we public with our faith and are we prepared? So first, are we public with our faith? If we aren't experiencing suffering, a unique suffering for our allegiance to Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, I've needed to wrestle with this question, how public am I with my faith? Because maybe it is that that no one actually knows that we're Christians, and so there's no opportunity for them to demonstrate any kind of opposition to the faith that we hold dear because they have no idea that we hold it. How public are we with our faith? The apostles are in the center of public life, in the temple, in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. And when I ask the question, how public are we about our faith? I I don't mean to be obnoxious about that. I don't mean to be a jerk about it. I don't mean to sort of just be angry about it. Remember back in verse 13, Luke tells us that everyone held them in high esteem. Everyone thought well of them. These people are not jerks. They're not obnoxious. They're not arrogant about it. And yet they're very public with it. They don't hide their faith. They're public about their commitment to this life. How public are we about our commitment to this life? Second, then, are are we prepared? if we're public, are, are we public at our faith? Are we also then prepared? Because if we are public, we won't be able to avoid suffering for this life. The Apostle Paul, who we haven't yet met in the story of Acts, but we will in a few chapters, uh, wrote a letter to a young pastor named Timothy. And in that letter, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Are we prepared? that. See, we should expect that if we are public about our faith, that even if we're we're winsome and kind and grace-filled and loving and nuanced, even if we're all those things, that yes, some people will be deeply attracted to the message of Jesus, the message of this life, but also despite how winsome and grace-filled and kind we are, we also have to expect that some, even many, will reject with harshness the message, and also to us as the messengers. Are we prepared for that? You know, I don't know that I usually am. I think my operating assumption tends to be that, well, if if I'm kind and nuanced and winsome and grace-filled to people, that even as I'm proclaiming the message of, of Jesus and talking to them about my faith and helpful ways that, that everyone will just still like me. You know, but Jesus, he was the most winsome, the most thoughtful, the most kind, the most grace-filled, loving person who has ever walked on this planet. And in the end, he was crucified. Yet this life won't let us avoid Suffering. Are we prepared? Okay, so now we pick back up the story of the apostles. What's happening here? They've been thrown into the public prison by the religious leaders. And they, you know, are going to probably just hold them there overnight and then have a trial in the morning. That's what they did back with Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. So they lock them up for the night. um, But but they don't get the chance to have the trial in the morning. Because look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I kind of wonder what what they did, you know, the, the rest of the night. Did they go get something to eat, whatever. But they, you know, they got let out of prison. They checked in with their friends and then back in the temple in the morning, like they always do, proclaim this life. I mean, these guys are like one of those inflatable punching bags that your, your friend had when you were a kid, right? Do you remember these things? You know, it's like these, you just knock them down. They're filled with sand in the bottom. You knock them down. You can sit on them. You can tackle them. They always just pop right back up again, right? You can't keep them down. I mean, they arrest these guys and in the middle of the night, an angel appears, releases them from prison, Apparently, we're going to find out in a moment. No one knows that happened. They think they're still locked up, but they, they pop right back up again the next morning in the temple. And, and that's one of the things that fascinates me about this text, this passage, is this you know, rescue by the angel. It's not really a rescue, is it? Because, they, yes, they're released out of prison, but it's not as though the angel says, okay, guys, I'll, I'll let you out of prison. Now, now go get out of Jerusalem because these people are going to, they're really opposed to you. They're going to try to kill you. And the angel says, hey, I've released you. Now go back and do the very same thing you were doing just, you know, 12 hours ago that got you here in the first place. Go right back into the very thing that caused the suffering. And uh, what happens next is one of my favorite parts of the story. So, so the apostles are released from the middle of night by this angelic power, this kind of miraculous thing that's happening. They return to the temple in the morning, and they start teaching about this life again, just like they've been doing every morning. But the, the high priest and the other leaders, they don't know about that yet. They're busy kind of in their, their council room, the courtroom, getting everything ready for the trial. And they, they go and send the, the kind of the temple police, the guards, to go get these guys out of prison. And uh, they get there, and and this is where, you know, I almost can't help but even laughing a little bit at how this unfolds, beginning in verse 22. So it says, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported back, uh, we found the prison doors securely locked, and the guards are standing at the doors. But when we opened them, actually there was no one inside. Uh, Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them and wondering what would come of this. And someone told them, hey, look, the men who you put in prison, they're standing in the temple teaching the people. And then the captain of the guard went with the officers and brought them, not by force, They kind of convinced them, why don't you come along? Because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, that's not a drug culture reference. Uh, that was actually a way, you know, they were actually afraid people throwing rocks at them and, and, and killing them. Um, so they kind of convinced these 12 apostles, hey, why don't you come with us? They don't take them by force. They bring them to the council room. They go. And when they brought them, they set them down. And this is what, just, I just love this, before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, and I expect immediately what this guy's going to ask is, how did you get out of prison? But they, they don't even go there. They just say, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Didn't we tell you yesterday, and, and by the way, didn't we lock you up in jail too? But didn't we tell you yesterday to stop doing this? What's, what, what gives? Yet here you are, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, Jesus' blood upon us. And, and again, I, I love it. They don't even ask what I think is the most pressing question here. Like, how did you get out of jail with the doors locked and the guards in place and everybody thinks you're there? Like, how did that this is like a, you know, a stunt worthy of Houdini, but they, you know, they don't even ask about that. And the response is so brilliant, so simple and yet so profound. You know, they, they say, why are you continuing to do this? We ordered you not to speak in this name. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than any human authority, rather than you. And right then and there, then they decide we're gonna, they're going to preach a sermon. <laughs> Another sermon of these leaders right in that moment. They, they cannot stop proclaiming this life, even in the face of death. Uh, because the response of the high priest and this religious council is to want to kill them. We see this in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But here's the thing. This life cannot be stopped by suffering. And that's what amazes me about this passage is that two things are so clear. One, this life won't let us avoid suffering. That's absolutely clear here. But, but two, on the other hand, suffering won't stop this life. It can't stop this life. And you can try to lock this life up. You can try to silence this life. You can do all you want to inflict suffering on this life, but this life cannot be stopped. Just like those pop up punching bags, this life will continue to endure, continue to bounce back again and again and again. And the apostles know this firsthand. Because actually, this whole scene before the council and the accusation and anger and wanting to be killed, they had seen all this once before. This is the same group of people who Jesus was brought before. The same group of people who tried Jesus and brought false witnesses and handed him over to Rome to be executed. This is that very same council. The apostles, they had been here before with Jesus. But at that time, they, they fled. They ran away. They hid. But now they're, they're standing here boldly proclaiming almost defiantly to this group who has the power to end their lives. What's the difference? Well, they had seen the resurrected Jesus. They, they had seen firsthand with their own eyes that this life cannot be stopped by suffering, not even by death. You see, the resurrection changes everything for them. Uh, that's why the resurrection is such a massive theme in the book of Acts and throughout the entire New Testament. It is what changes everything. That this life cannot be stopped even by death. So, so, this is how Peter goes from denying Jesus three times to now standing before the very people who had condemned Jesus to death and now who want to kill him, and he can boldly proclaim the gospel. And he says it in verse 30 so clearly The God of our fathers raised Jesus, he's been raised from the dead. Because of the resurrection, this life cannot be stopped by suffering. And we continue to see this around the world today. That as we look at our brothers and sisters around the globe, we see the church is thriving in places, in the very places where, where often the suffering is the greatest, where persecution is incredibly intense, intense for being aligned with the name. Why? Because the hope of resurrection in Jesus means that this life cannot be stopped by suffering. And we need to learn from our brothers and sisters around the globe who are in those places, who, who know in sometimes deeper and more uh, intense ways what it is to suffer for allegiance to this life. Because you and I do experience true, real, genuine opposition in our faith, in our cultural context. Absolutely we do but not necessarily with the same degree or same intensity as many of our brothers and sisters around the world. This is one of the reasons why we partner with churches and leaders and Christians in other parts of the world um, that experience this kind of intense suffering. We have partners in places like Iran and China, northern Kenya, places where the suffering is, is intense often for those Christians. Actually, we're taking the team to Kenya here in just a few weeks. Be, be praying for that. And I think it can be easy sometimes as we think about those partnership relationships to, to think, oh, those, we're really helping them and, and they really need us. You know, and that, that's true, right? That a, that's part of the reason we're partners is this exchange. But in reality, we, we partner with them not only because they need us, but because we desperately need them. We need to learn from our brothers and sisters who are in places where, remaining faithful to. Jesus, having an an allegiance to the message of the gospel is costly. Part of the reasons we're in those partnership relationships is to learn, teach us what it is to do this and to find joy in the midst of it and to learn from them and their experience what it means to follow Jesus into a life of unavoidable suffering. Okay, so now the story has kind of reached this climactic point. Peter and the other apostles have proclaimed their unfaltering allegiance to and hope in Jesus. And Luke tells us the officials are enraged. They want to kill them. And I wonder what's going through these 12 apostles' minds at this point. Because I'm sure they had to be thinking in this moment that this could be it. Because they had seen this play out with Jesus. They know that the reality of their lives ending very soon is, is a very real possibility in this moment. I mean, this is how it ended for Jesus, and so the council is there in rage, ready to condemn them for, to death. Uh, they're ready to execute them right there. But then something happens. Someone in the council stands up, a, a leader named Gamaliel, and, and he gives orders for the apostles to be put outside the council room. For send them outside for a little bit, and, and he begins to make a speech. It's, it's such a fascinating speech. And he basically says to the council, look, there have been a lot of so-called messiahs who have kind of risen up in our history since we've been occupied by Rome, and they all end up coming to nothing. You know, they attract a following, a few hundred, a few thousand people, but then Rome crushes them, executes the leaders, and it just goes away into nothing. And he's saying, this is probably just another one of these moments. Let's just let it play out. Let's not risk an uproar. Let's not risk a riot in Jerusalem by trying to to kill these leaders. Let's just let it play out. Let it fizzle out on its own. He says, if this is nothing, it will come to nothing. And then he makes this fascinating comment, though. Gamaliel says, but if it is from God, you're not going to be able to stop it anyway. Isn't that interesting? If this is from God, you're not going to be able to oppose it anyway. And surprisingly, the, the council listens to his advice. They don't kill them, but they do say, well, let's let's brutally beat them. And so this beating, they would have been whipped on the back and the chest with the three-stranded stripes of, of kind of calf-hide whip. And, and the text doesn't Tell us uh, how many times or how, but if they received the maximum penalty, that would have been 39 lashes. And a beating like that could have left them near death um, just from blood loss and shock. The council hopes that, that such a brutal beating will finally convince them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. But not even close. Not even close. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, verse 42, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, Christ is just another term for Messiah, that the Messiah is Jesus. Jesus. This life won't let us avoid suffering. This life can't be stopped by suffering. And this life is joy even through suffering. And what if we were joyful? Because, you, you know, when, when Gamaliel should have known, he, he should have known his cause was lost, was when the apostles left a brutal beating rejoicing. And this is where I want to be clear: not all suffering that we experience in the world is a cause for rejoicing, right? Because some of we experience the suffering of living in a broken house, miscarriage, and death, and infertility, and cancer, and those things aren't. We don't rejoice about those things. Those are cause for lament, for mourning, for crying out for God. Would you make this right? But when we encounter Suffering for our allegiance to Jesus. That, friends, is a cause for joy. That's when Gamaliel should have known that his cause was lost. When when these apostles left rejoicing from that kind of a brutal beating. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. That's the end of the game right there. If the response to an enemy inflicting suffering is rejoicing for the privilege of being counted worthy enough of Jesus to experience that suffering, what can you do to stop it? No, you can't stop it. Because, you see, it's not just that the early Christians were crucified, that they were executed, that they were thrown to the lions and the other kind of wild beasts in the Roman Colosseum. Lots of people. Other than Christians, experienced that kind of suffering at the hands of Rome. Lots of people were executed by Rome. The fact that they were executed by Rome is not what set them apart. What set them apart was as they died, they sang, they prayed, they worshiped, they rejoiced. What do you do with that? I mean, that's unstoppable. What what toppled the most powerful empire in the world at the time? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. That's what what overcame Rome. Not not the... (laughs) Not the triumph, of a, the, faith, the, the triumph of the Christian faith, the triumph of the Christian faith is not an angry demanding of one's rights. It, it triumphed because of an irrepressible joy in the face of suffering. What if we were joyful? Years after this moment in the book of Acts, The Apostle Peter, who would eventually die for his faith in Rome, he he wrote a letter to Christians around the Roman Empire. And I want to read you a little bit of that letter. And I I just can't help but think that as Peter penned these words to his fellow believers that that he didn't have this moment in his life in Acts chapter 5 in mind as he wrote. Hear these words from the letter of 1 Peter. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. So Don't be surprised. This isn't unusual. This is what it means to follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice with great joy When his glory is revealed, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. What if we were joyful? We follow the one who suffered for us, Jesus, the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame. This life won't let us avoid suffering, but suffering cannot stop it. And we can find joy even through it. Indeed, that kind of joy is the hallmark of this life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm going to pray right now what is a prayer that there's a big part of me that doesn't want to pray, and that is that you would make me and that you would make us worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Would you make us a community worthy of that? We don't go looking for suffering. We're not going to be jerks. We're not going to bring it on ourselves. Would you count us worthy that as we remain faithful to you that we would do that even if it means suffering. And when it does mean suffering, would you help us to find an irrepressible joy through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.